What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by a very special guest, Rosanna. So Rosanna and I have been trying to get this uh, interview done for a decent amount of time, but I was finally able to snag her during the holidays, so I'm very excited that you all get to hear this conversation because she's great. She is a serial entrepreneur, investor, CEO, uh, podcast host. She goes uh, to CEO to CEO advising and much, much more. She is a great, great person to talk about with a lot of different knowledge bases and backgrounds. So we get into the macro entrepreneurship outlook for 2023 and much, much more. But as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice and should not be taken as financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast is strictly the opinion of myself and Rosanna and should not, not, not be taken as financial advice. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, everybody? I am back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I've got a very special guest. I've got Rosanna. She's a serial entrepreneur, host of the CEO, CEO Advisor. She's a founder, creator, educator, decision-making expert, options trader, a bunch of different stuff, and overall just great voice on Twitter spaces and other places like that. So Rosanna, how are you doing today? Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Brandon. We've been trying to do this interview for months and I'm so grateful that we finally had a chance to do this today. So thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm very excited to get this conversation rolling. As you mentioned, we've been kind of wanting to do this for some time, but uh, we finally were able to make it work here around the holidays. So I appreciate you squeezing it in here. And uh, for those in the audience who don't know much about you, why don't you go into a little bit of your background and tell us a little about yourself? Sure. Great. Thank you. Okay. So I've been an investor and serial entrepreneur, repeatedly turning creative ideas into businesses for over 25 years. I guess that dates me, but it's okay. I've never had a boss and I've been founder and CEO of multiple businesses since college, where I studied in an accelerated program in decision and information sciences. And then I later also earned an MBA. I'm currently a CEO of an international manufacturing business-to-business e-commerce business. I was also CFO for many years, probably like, what, like over 10 years. And I'm also CIO of a private equity investment holding company. So as you can tell, investments are one of my main focuses, and I'm very fundamentally based as well. I recently have been admitted into the leadership decision-making program at JFK School of Government at Harvard University, and I'll be attending that in January. You can always learn more about everything, especially the field of my uh, focus, which is decision-making sciences. As a lifelong learner and philomath, and what that actually means is that I'm just a lover of learning, and I love to learn and um, we're also autodidacts. So we're always learning and we learn as we go in life. And that's very important as a serial entrepreneur, as we're always making mistakes and learning from them. So my goal is always to further enhance my expertise in decision-making sciences and then advise and help others. And that's the goal here is to educate others. So I also plan to take my Series 65 Investment Advisor exam near term. 
And I have a few more things planned. And I also am planning to get a CFA, which takes time. So it's nowhere near the point of receiving that new title. Uh, I am an MBA and I've been CFO, CEO, CIO. I've, I've been an executive officer at all levels of the business from startups to operations to selling businesses as well. So it will add to my experiences and knowledge to enhance my educational platform that I have, which is www.rosannapresti.com. And I also have a podcast. I don't know if you know that, Brandon. I have the Row Show podcast. Um, so, and I just started that not too long ago. And the goal is to inspire and elevate others with financial literacy and wealth building and more. So my areas of focus are executive decision-making, fundamentally-based investing, options trading, business and entrepreneurship centered on problem-solving, creative, strategic thinking, and catalyst leadership. So this is what I've been doing for many, many years. So that's what I'm focused on, but always learning new things. Yeah, for sure. And that's awesome. I mean, it sounds like, you you know, you're, you definitely keep yourself busy and that seems like an understatement. So, but I think it's really interesting, your background on decision-making. And I kind of want to dive into that a little bit because, you know, I, I think, especially when it comes to, you know, the greater, you know, uncertainty of what, what is the macro environment and various investment strategies and other things like that, you know, a lot of new investors have an issue kind of getting off the ground and maybe getting started. So, you know, how has, I guess, your decision making uh, background, you know, kind of helped you one, even become an entrepreneur as that can be, you know, a very scary adventure. And then two, kind of, you know, further your career even more and just, uh, you know, learn to, I guess, grow your wealth and kind of, uh, you know, go to strategies like that. Absolutely. Excellent question. Well, as you know, that I, I always say, and it's a quote I put on my website is your life is a summation of your decisions. Optimize your decision making to transform your life. So at the core of where you are right now is all the decisions you've made to this point. And when you want to plan for the future, you have to take into account making the proper decisions going forward. So we are, I believe in the growth mindset, empowered mindset. We can change our lives. We can do anything. And I firmly believe that. And I do that with my life every day. I create my own life. And I'm also a mom of three sons. And I have a wonderful husband who has the same mindset. Um, so in trading, that's all about execution. Now you can know all the skills, you can study all the fundamentals, you can do all the technical analysis, but ultimately it comes down to your decision-making in that moment. And so trading su success is about the execution, about the decision-making in that moment. So I talk a lot about intuition versus emotion. And it's very important to separate that impulsiveness when we rush from having a reaction, an emotional response. Look, we're human beings. We all have emotions. It's not about eliminating the emotions. It's about using those emotions to our benefit, channeling them, turning them into passion, motivation, drive. And that's what I, it's a challenge for me every day as well. Um, but over time, I've gained that experience of, reducing the impulsivity of making that emotionally based decision and instead either using intuition or 
relying on more of an analytical, logical mindset to make your decisions. And there's a lot of key components to the decision-making and um, it's about being perceptive, open-minded, um, having the feedback loop, um, trying to shorten the length of the feedback loop, being able to be in tuned into the moment, being present. And, you know, um, over time you gain that experience. We don't realize how we use expertise-based intuitive decision-making in our lives every day. And um, they're just automatic. Some decisions we just make, but we then we put such emphasis on other decisions, like let's say trading, and we're so hard on ourselves and we make it like it's such a difficult thing. And it's actually not. And it's about divide and conquer. And we need to try to separate the parts and tackle each item individually. So when you break up problems into smaller problems, they're easier to tackle. And you can do that with decision making as well. So it's about staying present and zeroing in on the small parts and tackling each part individually. And I think you can have more success with that. Yeah, for sure. And that's awesome. I, I love you breaking that down. But you also mentioned there about emotions and that you should be, you know, embracing your emotions and kind of learning from them and using them to your advantage. Now, failure is obviously a big portion of becoming an entrepreneur and kind of learning from those lessons. So, Absolutely. you know, how do you, I guess, uh, you know, manage those emotions and what kind of emotions do you think that are, you know, I guess, beneficial to go through through failure to kind of help yourself I guess, catapult yourself and learn, you know, from those mistakes and become better, whether it's an entrepreneur, a person, investor, what have you? Great question. It's difficult. And it's, you know, it, it may come easier to some people than others. Um, some are more sensitive. Um, and it, it's about resiliency and being able to channel that pain. Look, it hurts when you make a mistake. Okay. It's, it's normal. You get upset with yourself. Yeah. Maybe there's some people that say, you know, I love mistakes. I'm learning, I'm learning. And that's great mindset. Um, but overall, I think most people, um, get very upset with themselves and they can get down on themselves. So what you need to do is try to avoid that bottoming process. Now, if you feel that you need to let those emotions pass through you, that's fine. And you need to, you never should deny, you should accept and it's about being accountable. So accepting the mistake is the first step. And if you need to go through the emotional process of processing that feeling, absolutely go for it. But during that process, I would advise and what I would do is avoid the decision making in that moment, in that time period from when you have your emotional reaction until the decision making because you want to separate that time period. Now, for me, you know, it was very difficult when I started out. I made a lot of mistakes. Absolutely. I still do. I mean, I do all the time in business. I mean, even though running a business is like, I have automacity and it comes natural. It's just like, it's expertise-based, intuitive decision-making. And um, it comes, it's like riding a bike for me because this is what I've done for 25 years. So, you know, after a certain amount of time, it comes natural, but we're all human and we all make mistakes. And someone starting out um, may have it more difficult. See, trading is very raw. It's very primal. It's like 
you're punished right away. You know, sometimes you make decisions and in life, you don't have the results of your decisions immediately. But in, in trading, especially day trading, um, you, you get that immediate punishment. And if you want to improve, then you need to accept it. And you have to turn that loss into learning. And it's easier said than done, but it can be done. And you take that, you learn, and you try to remain um, as neutral as possible, perceptive, flexible is very, being flexible is very important and keeping an open mind. And you, you should accept feedback. Uh, it's about that feedback loop. That is key to enhance your performance. And through time, as you use that feedback loop and you keep an open mind and you try to avoid getting too upset, I guess is the word, or emotional, emotionally charged about the, the mistake, if you can accept it and say, you know what, this is how I'm going to learn and I'm going to be better. Maintain a positive mindset because you will improve. If you put it in your mind that you will improve and you'll learn from that and you embrace it and you keep working at it, things will get better. And I, I, I do have that positive outlook because I do think that ultimately if you work hard, anything's possible. There we go. And that's awesome. Yeah. And I, you know, I, as I'm kind of going through my own entrepreneurial journey, it, it is kind of difficult, you know, to go through those ups and downs. And especially, you know, when there's a bunch of outside factors too, you know, obviously one that comes to mind that I talk about a bunch on this show is just the overall macro environment, right? So we're having a you know, whether you want to say we're in a recession now or we're going to one or we're heading towards that way, we're, we're kind of having a tough time economically. And it doesn't seem like there's a super great outlook going forward. And I know both you and I kind of talk about that a little bit, you know, when it comes mm -hmm. to you know, various Twitter spaces and other things like that. So, you know, just bird's eye view right now. How do you kind of view this overall macro environment? And uh, yeah, but why don't you kind of get into it that way? Great. Thank you. Yes. I love your spaces, by the way. You run some amazing spaces on Twitter and you have great speakers, Brandon. So thank you. Um, yes, I believe we share a similar mindset. Uh, next year, as of this point, doesn't look much better. Uh, it could actually be worse. And people say, how could it get worse? There's a possibility of that. Now, the only certainty is uncertainty. And, and I say that quite a bit because we really don't know. There's so many interrelated moving parts. Uh, there's this whole talk about polycrisis and there's all these new issues going on. And persistent elevated inflation is a global concern. It's not just the U.S. And so to me, I only like to look at three to six months ahead. We don't know what 12 months from now will bring. But I, I will think, in my opinion, in the next six months, I do not foresee inflation coming down to 2.5 percent like they're predicting mid next year, I believe inflation is very sticky and services and wages, especially. And um, I think it's going to be very tough. Now, we've seen a recent deceleration in the CPI, mostly due to medical. That was two months back to back. There was a decline. That was very odd, in my opinion. And also some transportation energy services were down. And if it weren't for another low month of medical services, I don't think CPI would have been that decelerated, that much lower. Um, so I, I don't think it's time to just start getting excited that inflation's coming down. 
Um, services are very sticky. And there seems to be like signs of actual services pressures building up in the CPI report. Now, the Atlanta Fed um, does have a 12-month sticky CPI. They, they, I think in November, they raised it to 6.6%, which is the highest reading since the 80s, the early 80s. Cleveland Fed, which I usually use to forecast, um, actually came in on the up the high side. And so maybe it's changing now that it's going to be the high side. I don't know, but um, they're predicting, I think, high sixes for the next time. Um, you know, the current deflationary forces and core goods seems to maybe have bottomed. Um, so, I mean, I'm wondering, and I read when an economist wrote, um, maybe it could actually reverse back up next year sometime. I'm not in that camp. I'm not at that point where I'm ready to say that, but I think we could stay in the range of four to 6%. A friend of mine I actually just met with on a space, uh, Michael Kramer, he, I agree with him. He said about four to 6%. And I actually believe that that's very possible in that range. And I'm actually wondering if we could be at a new level of inflation where three to 4% is the new norm. So here's the thing. It's a double, it, it's, it goes both ways. Now, you know, inflation affects revenues. You know, mostly the revenues are upheld by inflated prices rather than higher output and volume. So if inflation comes down significantly, then earnings are going to come down a lot and we're going to have issues with that and we could have an earnings recession. That's a possibility. Now, I've spoken about there being possibly an earnings recession. That's possible. Um, quarter four right now, they're predicting that we are down year over year. And what's an earnings recession? It's two quarters back to back of lower earnings than the year before. So if we get quarter four, all we need is that next quarter. So we'll see if we get an earnings recession. But earnings are absolutely compressed across the board. Um, so back to that point about inflation. So if inflation stays higher, then the earnings recession might be averted. Because then inflation doesn't come down as much. So that means that revenues can still stay elevated and not crash, not come down as much. So um, it sort of like works both ways there. So it's either you get your inflation down like everyone wants, but then everyone else suffers, that the businesses suffer. And then if you don't have inflation down as much, so the economy is going to suffer, but then the businesses fare a little better. So you really can't win with either one. Um, I'm not saying there's going to be a new bottom. I don't know. Um, but I think that inflation will take quite some time to work through. It's embedded at all levels. We have monetary inflation. We have cost push inflation. Um, and, you know, we have entrenchment. Absolutely. Being in the manufacturing business, I'm seeing entrenchment with uh, wages and price settings. And it absolutely is affecting decision making. I have prices still going up for my cost of goods sold. And I'm wondering, is this just entrenchment? Are they capitalizing on this generally accepted um, high inflation narrative? Or is it are prices still going up? So there's a lot of factors there. But for me, I'm very cautious going into next year. And I'm definitely remaining defensive. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of people are kind of screaming for a pivot or something like that for the Fed to kind of make a change, make a move. But it seems like a lot of the, you know, signs in the economy um, 
outside of, I guess, the stock market really are, um, you know, just still like we're, we're not quite in that recession just yet. As you mentioned, you know, the, their earnings haven't been down quite as much. Housing's kind of starting to stabilize, starting to come down in certain areas. Um, but we're still kind of having, like, you know, a relatively low unemployment number. And I think that the Fed kind of still wants to continue for that to come up. So, you know, I guess, how do you view overall how the Fed is doing in this, you know, massive amounts of, uh, I guess, uh, changing in interest rates? Because it, it has been, you know, a, a pace that, you know, is almost at, at a historic pace, how quickly they're um, you know, continuing to increase the interest rates and other things like that. So, you know, with all these macroeconomic factors overall with the, the economy, you know, how do you kind of view, I guess, this all playing out in 2023 or I guess in the next six months or so? Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, we can't cry over spilled milk and we can't, you know, keep saying uh, the Fed made mistakes in the past. But in my opinion, they went too low. And be having rates of practically zero for too long um, really was detrimental. So now they had to speed it up very quickly. So ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, are we really that high historically? No, we're really not. But comparison to where we were, we are. Um, so, I, of course, I like to say the Fed should have started raising rates last year. Um, they could have diverted, you know, averted some of these issues now. But, you know, I think that, you know, rates should be at an agreeable level, which zero was not. Zero was, I mean, that was just free money. And, you know, it, it really caused a lot of the issues that we had. And so um, I think that at this point, as the Fed tightens their monetary policy, because it's not just about raising rates, it's about overall tightening their policy and remaining more restrictive, they have the goal of higher unemployment. And, you know, services should weaken, which will weaken GDP. And that's important. That's another topic I like to mention. But I want to talk about the labor market. Um, you brought up the labor market, and it's very important. I think the labor market holds the key to inflation. So let's see, as the Fed raises rates with the intention of having GDP below trend growth, and that makes sense because the velocity of money, and we had this discussion earlier today, um, and it actually helps facilitate higher inflation. And currently right now we have GDP up and we have the money supply down and that's causing the velocity of money to increase. So um, we need to actually change it the other way. And that's either by increasing the money supply or reducing GDP. And so nominal GDP right now, I believe was at three point, where was it? 3.7 they're estimating. And so, you know, nominal doesn't take into account inflation. So we go real GDP is still high. So um, that needs to come down. So let's go back to labor market. Nominal wages have grown significantly, which is really what's fueling inflation. Wage inflation fuels nominal spending, which continues to drive nominal demand in a loop, which further facilitates entrenchment. Increased tightness in the labor market, as we saw today with numbers of just a continuing uh, reminder that we have a very tight labor market, that places pressure on consumer prices. So between services and wages, which are very sticky and showing no signs of relief at this point, um, it seems that inflation will remain elevated. And the Fed's only tools are, one, raising the Fed fund rate, raising the rates, okay? Um, 
that or taxation. Now that's not what people want. That's not what's going to happen. So um, they have the only tool they have is to to raise the rates. Um, I, I I couldn't comment. I'm not in the Fed. I, I don't know all the policies and everything. I can't say whether it's going to be effective or not. But what I can say is that I've read research um, from macroeconomists um, who've said that it's ineffective. And I read some, from some that say it is effective. It'll help demand destruction. It'll help reduce consumption. Um, and that's the only way. And then I have other ones that say they raise the rates and then they're going to bring us into a severe recession. So what can we do? It's a delicate balance. You over tighten, you go into a severe recession. You under tighten and then you have further entrenchment. So it's it's a very delicate balance. Now, services spending is mostly a function of employment and wages. So we know during COVID, goods were inflated, mostly due to major supply chain issues. So now they're deflating. Um, so it comes down to wages and services, and uh, they're both very sticky. Employment is stretched. So services spending is compensating for the contraction in goods and real estate spending. Um, the softening of the labor market. Now, I just want to bring up this point. I think it's important for all the listeners to know this. I'm sure, I think you're familiar with this, Brandon. Um, you know, it's important to look at more than just one data point. And I believe that uh, Jay Powell brought up this um, point as well. I think he said that it's not just um, an unemployment rate to go up, but um, I think he mentioned the JOLTS report. It was something else. I think he says that would suffice to show if the labor market's softening. So I think what's important, we look at claims, NFP, JOLTS. And when we start looking across the data points, there's some inconsistencies in the data. Now, we saw the Philly job, Fed job numbers was off by a million. Um, very strange there. Um, with our business as well, we noticed a surge in applicants over the summer. Um, so there was actually not the imbalance of <laughs> the imbalance of workers from supply and demand. We actually had a huge surge in people applying. Now, of course, we're in the New York metro area, so a lot of businesses closed down from the COVID um, essential businesses of restrictions. Um, but you know, the NFP is very interesting and we should make note. Um, I think it's significant, maybe it's just noise, but they use an establishment and a household survey. So we know the number of, number of multiple job holders has increased significantly since 2021. And so we see this phenomenon and the NFP actually uses the establishment survey to calculate job, jobs count. So employees that are working at greater than one job and appearing on more than one payroll are counted separately for each appearance. So those numbers could be vastly inflated as well. So I don't know if this is um, just noise or if this is something that we should look closely at. But the, so there's a big disparity between the household and establishment surveys. And then there's also two other variables, the beverage curve, which is job openings to unemployment and the fill rate, which is job openings to hires. So when you start looking at those ratios, both are showing that less softening may suffice. So, you know, it's just a delicate balance once again. And uh, I mean, it shows that a lot of the elevated number of people taking jobs are actually not coming from the unemployed, which is why there's like a disparity across that. So 
as I said before, it's a balance. If you soften too much or if you soften too little, it's um, there's ramifications on both sides. So it's a very tough position and I wouldn't want to be in that position. Um, but, and last point I'm going to say about this is that I made a tweet about this about a few weeks ago. I said, you know, in 2022, it was all about inflation. And everyone was watching the CPI and the PCE. That was like a big event. I wonder if in 2023, it's about earnings, compressions, and maybe a recession, um, earnings recession, that is. Um, and then labor issues. Are people going to be watching the jolts and um, NFP reports like the CPI? I don't know. Or earnings. I mean, finally, I love watching earnings myself anyways, but um, just interesting, interesting history in the making. Yeah, for sure. And it's definitely an interesting time, you know, just to kind of look at these overall macro factors. And I think that's a big reason why a lot of these macro spaces have kind of blown up is just there's so much going on and so many different areas to kind of talk about. But you already mentioned it a little bit about GDP. And I kind of want to talk about where we're at in that, you know, you had a tweet actually earlier today about GDP, uh, you know, talking about the velocity of money, how, you know, when nominal GDP rises and the money supply decreases, then the velocity increases significantly. Um, and, you know, we're, we're kind of in this interesting spot, I guess, in, in the overall economy, just looking at nominal GDP and just kind of how things are moving globally too. Um, you know, we're seeing the U.S. still kind of in front when, when it comes to global GDP. And then now we're seeing China kind of start to creep up on us with that as well. So, you know, I guess, how do you view that uh, section of the economy and like how people are analyzing that overall? And uh, yeah, how do you also view like, I guess, China's kind of rise and uh, I guess the, the overall competition that China brings to the United States as, you know, potentially the, the global reserve power? Mm, great question. Well, we are part of a global economy. We're in a global community and we're all interrelated. Our currency is affected by other currencies and it's never in a bubble. We're not, we don't live in a vacuum and we're all related to everyone else. What recently happened with Japan affected everyone worldwide. You know, um, they've had deflationary for, they've been, all of a sudden they went inflation now. I think they're, I don't know what they're their recent report, I think 4% or something, but they've been a deflationary state for so long. And then as they raise their rates, uh, everyone else's rates were raised and it's just um, rates across the board. So we're all, and then what happened with England and then China having the economic restrictions that we had, you know, there, China is the second largest GDP output country. So if anything happens with China and, and it, it, it definitely affects the global economy. There's such a large GDP output company, I mean, country. Uh, so, you know, you have to, and I know a lot of people don't like to talk about international relations and foreign policy. It's a complicated topic. Um, and, but you have to at least be aware of what's going on because what's going on out there affects us here. Yes. You, us is, is a central part of the world. It is, um, you know, the stock market's based in New York. So, you know, uh, we, we are very important, central integral part of the global community. However, other forces affect us as well. So it's important to keep that in mind. Um, you know, as the Fed tightens the monetary policy, um, it should weaken GDP. Now, as nominal GDP growth slows, and inevitably, this growth is slowing. 
And it's most likely, in my opinion, leading to a stagflationary environment with near 0% real growth rate. Now, nominal versus real and everything is inflation is a difference. Um, so we live in a nominal world. Earnings are reported in nominal terms. Everything's reported in nominal. We don't go around and say, okay, this is in real and that's in nominal. Um, so, you know, we may or may not come into a recession by the end of next year. Um, I know people don't like to think this, but it could be delayed. I mean, remember, the inverted yield curve is predictive of a recession nine to 28 months, I believe. It's not necessarily next month. You know, people think, oh, it's going to, it's an inverted. So we're having a recession right away. And it's like, no, actually it can easily be a year to two years or maybe a little more. So I think that this is a slow, long process, unfortunately, um, but this is what we're at. And we just need to be aware, you know, being market awareness is very important, economic awareness and just accepting um, the conditions that we're in right now. And this could take a long time and maybe the recessions moved off into 2024. Uh, I don't know. I don't like to speak that far in advance. I mean, um, my take is that the Fed may pause rates um, some point, maybe May or mid next year. Maybe they'll wait. Maybe they'll re go back and, and issue some more rate hikes. Maybe I, I my opinion as of right now, which is still very far off, um, I don't see a cut. Um, maybe next December if conditions get really poor. But the way the labor market is so tight, um, I don't see that occurring. And that's the key. Um, also, I mean, I think that we'll have some employment challenges, but I do believe that's also a little bit of ways off, maybe six to 12 months away as well. So there are a lot of things that it seemed to be in the future. But for right now, um, I think our growth is slowing. And there are, I mean, there's significant margin compression. And I've been speaking about this on spaces. And I'm sure you've heard me, Brandon, about compressed margins. And um, productivity is down and declining. There's less output per every dollar. So marginal costs have increased significantly. They're new fees. It's not just elevated costs of goods sold and expenses. They're new fees now. So we have compressed margins and you know, there's a dilution of value. And I actually been using that term quite a bit. It's just that we're getting less output for each input. So there's just a dilution. And it's, um, you know, it's just slowing growth. And, you know, with the rates working through the system as well, it will take some time. And that's going to further slow growth as well. So there are a lot of issues coming together here. And there are a lot of moving parts. Anything's possible, of course. Uh, but it doesn't look so good as of right now. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't even know. Like, I mean, I get on these things and I, and I talk to people and I try to be like a little bit, I guess, hopeful. But it doesn't seem like there's any signs really, um, you know, pointing to anything super encouraging lately, uh, which is kind of unfortunate, uh, but it makes for, I guess, good talking points. I guess that's the one positive out of all of it is everybody kind of wants to know what is going on in it. And it goes from, you know, the, the 
overall just macro environment and then it even kind of goes down to job reports other things maybe even specific businesses but at the end of the day you know housing is something that definitely affects everybody and we've kind of seen you know when it when it, the covid stimulus kind of came in and uh that pandemic was kind of running through you know the entire globe uh, honestly everybody was kind of just flocking to buying new houses or buying places and we saw housing just shoot up and Definitely in in a lot of areas like Florida, Texas, Tennessee, some of the South, uh, you know, that stayed a little bit more open, saw a lot of benefit for that. But now they're seeing it maybe kind of revert back to the mean as mortgage uh, mortgage interest rates are kind of increasing and other things like that. So, you know, on that note, how do you see you know the housing market uh, kind of playing out as these interest rates keep increasing? Housing's kind of, you know, a, a hot button topic here. And it's, you know, obviously it could be different from market to market, but how do you view it, I guess, on an overall just uh, state in the United States? Absolutely. Excellent question again. Uh, well, you know, some people, let me just first preface with some people are trying to compare it to 2008. And in my opinion, there's really no comparison. I mean, we could compare by studying for some similarities because there's always some similarities through time periods. And we study by comparing different historical time periods. Uh, but that was a financial banking crisis with very risky subprime loans. We're in a different state right now. Um, to me, this is a massive cooling down. Um, it's too early to say crash. It could crash. I don't know. Um, but I don't think it's like the 2008 because that was more of a banking crisis. Um, but just bear in mind that real estate is a very slow process. Uh, the shelter component in the CPI is lagging like five quarters plus. Uh, so and real estate itself is very slow. Like, for example, we have home sales down. I think it's the lowest since May 2020, something like that. Sometime in May, uh, sometime in 2020 early first half. And but home prices are still higher year over year from last year this time, but they are declining month over month. There was a significant decline this past month. However, nationally, um, it's a little bit diluted. We have to look more regionally. Now the hotbed COVID areas, those have come down significantly and those most likely will come down first. And there's inventory creeping up in those areas as well, like Phoenix, there's like, I think North Carolina and, you know, maybe some areas in Florida, but Florida is a different market. Florida is desirable and has had a hot market for many other reasons besides just being a place that people run to. A lot of people buy their winter homes there and I'm originally a Floridian anyways, but, um, but yeah, so even in some areas in Florida, we're seeing inventory increasing. Um, it's trickling up, but it's still very slow. Take this number. Okay. We have about a three, I think it's from realtor.com, a 3.3 month supply versus a 2.4 month supply year over year. That is not a significant increase in inventory. Um, that's, it's still, we still have very low inventory levels. Now I'm in Long Island. And I have to tell you, in my area, prices have not come down, okay? We have historical low inventory. I think people are still leaving New York City, and they're coming out to here. I'm a little outside of New York City, and um, people commute to work to New York City so they can live out here. And we are still seeing significant buyers in my area, and um, 
So prices are not coming down. So my area, once again, it's regional. So our area here is not really, and my prices have gone up here. So, and they've stabilized. So we'll have to see what happens. But as of right now, um, you know, people aren't rushing to sell their homes. People are staying put, whether it's, you know, rise in remote work, people don't have to relocate as much for work. Um, also locking into a low rate. So people are like, you know, why would I sell? I, I have 2.5 here. And if I get something new, it's going to be like 6% or five, whatever. Um, you know, why, why would I sell? I'll just stay where I am. So I, and the demand is down because buyers are being priced out. Um, so I think national estimates are about 5% decline with some markets still increasing um, overall with pricing. So it's not that much. Now, three important points to know and to make note of before people start screaming that we're headed to like a, a crazy crash. Um, first of all, it is a slow process. Things can change. So as of right now, just want to put this out there. Foreclosures are below normal levels. Okay, that's a positive. Owners' equities are actually higher than recent past. I know people are saying prices are coming down, but actually not significant enough um, to affect that. So owners' equities are higher than recent past. And I got this from, I think it's realtor.com. Um, and then mortgage products, we all know, are less risky with more regulations and restrictions than, you know, 2008 time period. So what do I see as potential problems? Well, inflation, um, if we have any issues with the labor market, um, there can always be, you know, savings are being depleted. Now there was an increase in savings and then now we're turning over to savings. The process, the strategy now is savings are going down and debt is rising. Well, what happens with debt? The cost of debt and capital is increasing. So are these people going to be able to afford paying down these new credit cards or whatever debt they've accumulated recently? Um, that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. It, it, it's not, the pattern doesn't look good right now. So how would housing be affected? Well, even though they have a low rate, if their expenses are higher, if maybe they have issues with the labor market, you know, maybe they can't afford their payment, even if it is low. So there could be issues like a, like a domino effect later on. Um, but I'm not here to predict and, and say that could happen. But these are all possibilities. So um, we just got to keep our eye on that and all the data and just, uh, you know, remain aware and cautious of all that. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I think that there's a lot of uncertainty, but there's a lot of signs, you know, to kind of read through the tea leaves and kind of just, I guess, figure out what's going on. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of want to transition here a little bit from just the overall, I guess, macro and, and what is going on to the market to becoming an, an entrepreneur and kind of starting that journey in an uncertain kind of macro time, because I think that that could be, you know, pretty difficult when, you know, obviously when everything's very easy and open at access to capital, you know, essentially we, we saw a lot of these zombie companies lately um, in the past decade or so where, it, you know, venture capitalists were essentially just throwing money at people. And if you put, you know, one of these buzzwords behind it, all these companies were getting crazy evaluations. But now, you know, I, I feel that people are going to be a little bit more tighter, closer to the vest with some of their venture capital money. And it's going to be a little bit harder to get, obviously, with 
some of these uh, you know the interest rate hikes. So as a new entrepreneur that's kind of getting into the uh, I guess overall entrepreneurship game, just kind of getting started here. What kind of advice do you have for somebody that you know is is beginning their journey in you know somewhat of an uncertain economic time? Excellent question. I actually feel that these are opportunistic times, and it's. I'm going to give you an example, and that's usually the best way to explain it. 2008, um, when the global financial crisis occurred. Um, people were scared. And I think most people, I think they were more scared than we are right now. Um, it was a very scary, difficult time. And it, it it's, that's when our business grew the most. And it was actually, we took risks, but we took calculated risks. We saw that there were opportunities. There were holes in the market. Um, that's when we were able to vertically and horizontally integrate our business. Now, it's important to remain liquid to seize these opportunities. However, the opportunities emerged. It is through after the most difficult times, like we're experiencing right now, that the most opportunities emerge. You know, I take a contrarian view here. It's when there's free money and there's so much to go around that there's lack of substance. It's actually more competitive. And it's, it's maybe sounds strange to hear that, but it's, there's just too much of it. And it's almost like, you know, that party is going to end eventually. And it got really crazy in 2020, 2020 into 21. And we all knew the party was going to end because we know the patterns in history. Um, but we don't need those times to be successful. And I, I think everyone should know that, you know, believe in yourself, have a solid product or service and be your best, that's how you survive. And we did that in 2000 and we did it in 2008. And I mentioned 2008 because it's the most recent example. Our business probably grew like five times. We vertically, um, we actually increased our supply chain and we took on mostly in the raw material side and we expanded our manufacturing. Now, some businesses folded and they do. And this is part of the contraction. It's part of the survival of the fittest, I call it. Um, and it happened with the real estate crisis as well. Um, you know, at some point in 2008, there were just too many real estate brokers and, and agents. Everyone was getting their license. If you recall, I don't know if you were around back then, but I was in the business. I was a commercial real estate broker. I had my own firm in downtown Seattle. And um, I remember I actually was getting annoyed. I was just like, these people, I was like, they're selling properties and they don't even know the process. And I, I was just like, you know, it was, it was just, it gets very frustrating for other brokers who are, are very uh, knowledgeable and experienced. And they see people who just get their license, who don't even spend the time to study and, and learn, and then just, you know, want to make easy money. So at some point, as the market started contracting, it was like the best brokers rose. And when I say best, it means the hardest working, the ones who are driven, the ones who are willing to put the effort to study and to improve themselves. And the real estate market at some point became healthier, I felt, with the agents. And 
because it was just too much. And so the same thing applies to now. There were just so many trading services. There was like an, uh, just so, too much. And how much of it was really substance? How much was really, really helpful for people? You know, you could put your money almost anywhere and it made money. Um, so now is when the hardworking, driven, innovative people survive and grow. So I think that you have a great product, a great service. You want to improve yourself. Now's the time. And that's what I'm doing. I, I just launched a podcast. I launched an investment and educational platform. And now's the time to be like a little cocoon. You get your, you get all your, your working done and you uh, just improve yourself. Most important is to have confidence and believe in yourself, not denial, not just being optimistic and saying everything's going to be great. No, being realistic. Self-awareness is key. And knowing um, yourself and knowing your market doing your research and working, working hard because, you know, I worked very hard in, in my life and, you know, it's, it's that never giving up now, just working hard does not guarantee results. It does not guarantee success. There's a lot of risk out there and there are a lot of other factors involved. So, you know, you can, all you can do is try your best, keep working and it will eventually work out. Just never give up. Yeah. And I mean, that those are some great words of encouragement. And and I agree. I mean, it seems like it's, uh, you know, they, I guess on, on Bitcoin Twitter, if you're, if you're ever on or venture your way that way, they always say bear markets are for building. And I think that's like, you know, kind of holds true in, in the entrepreneurship realm as well, because, you know, when it comes to, like you said, some of these tough things, it's, it's a little bit easier to, I guess, stand out because, you know, you're building in such a tough time. And that's where a lot of great companies came out in 2008 after that crash. And, and a lot of others, I'm sure, will kind of come out of this one where, um, you know, you could find something where, you know, there's maybe some hole in some market or some something that you can fix and build that company around that service or product or whatever it is. And, you know, you could come out, you know, prosperous on the other end once, of course, you know, the, the economy kind of fixes itself. And, you know, at the end of the day, the American economy is built around entrepreneurs and the resiliency around uh, of entrepreneurs. And, you know, you got to be resilient to be an entrepreneur just because of, you know, the, the waves that you ride up and down. So, um, you know, I guess on that note, do you have any, uh, I guess, closing remarks into 2023? Is there something that you're really looking forward to in the new year? Or, uh, you know, I guess something that uh, you're working on that you're, you know, excited about coming in this next year? Well, the best thing I could do is try to inspire others. And, um, you know, being a serial entrepreneur is finding inefficiencies in the world and believing that you can apply your creativity and make a difference. So it's about making the world a better place for others. I mean, at some point, you know, you, you're driven by financial means, but then what drives you past that? And it's, you know, you want to do things better, you know, and it's also fun. I mean, I love the process of just, you know, creating businesses, running them. I've sold some, um, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Um, so what am I looking at? Um, you know, well, I, during this time period, I've launched my investment platform and um, my educational platform to help others. I have my podcast. 
I'm looking to improve myself with more skills, decision-making. Uh, I already have advanced degrees in that, um, but I'm also improving. So during this time, like I said, I'm doing as I say. I'm improving my skills. I'm, I'm working to help enlighten and, and elevate others um, and also spreading the message with podcasts. And I think what you're doing here, Brandon, is fantastic. I love your podcast. I think what you do and you're, you know, you have a... a a drive for learning. And I see that a thirst for knowledge as you, you know, all of us do. We host these spaces, we host these podcasts, because ultimately you and I, we're with similar mindset. We want to learn. We want to keep improving. And it's like, the more I learn, the more I realize I know nothing, you know, like Socrates said, I think, it, yeah. And it's just about learning. I read incessantly. Um, we read a lot of books and just always working on that and then sharing with other people. Um, investment wise, um, I do believe there are opportunities coming. So I, my goal is to remain liquid. I do have a larger cash position than I have in recent past. Now, some people say, oh, you're losing money every day with inflation. Well, you know, most asset classes have negative expected returns right now. So um, I'd rather just lose inflation on inflation than lose on inflation and losing on returns. So um, I have played some commodities recently with silver via futures and gold as well. Um, I am looking, if we go to stagflation, I am looking towards some commodities as investments into next year because commodities tend to do better in stagflationary environments. Um, I also will look to eventually, not anytime soon, expand, diversify, and continue diversifying my um, investments. I do look at more real estate, income-producing properties, not in New York, though. I do <laughs> invest out of state. Um, and um, also um, more regarding the market, um, you know, I look for solid companies. I'm very fundamentally based. And as I believe I mentioned earlier, it's about free cash flow, earnings growth. Um, did I mention that? I don't know if I did, but I will. I'll go into it again. Why not? Um, fundamentals matter. So it's this past year was a select stock market. So I think that we may continue that way. Um, and there are emerging leaders. There are definitely companies out there producing the cash. And they're increasing their earnings. They're increasing their margins. They're out there. So there are quite a few of them. And I tweet about them quite often. Of course, anything could change. I always watch quarter to quarter to see how they're doing. And raising guidance is important. I look for essential businesses, like core businesses that are needed in these type of times, um, in a more inelastic or, you know, just medical, you know, there's some tech that's still good. And, you know, even though these times are tough, there's always those companies that are still shining and um, you can find them. And, um, you know, they say you make your money when you buy. So and I, that's a common um, saying in real estate. And it's true. So it's about how you buy when you buy. And so that's what I'm doing right now. I'm identifying those companies. I'm also looking at other asset classes as well, some private credit. Um, and, you know, maybe at some point when the rates peak, I'll buy some bonds long-term, non-callable. Not sure. There's something that we haven't looked at in many years because growth stocks and stocks have been the place to be. Uh, but we're in a different time right now. So I'm open. That's the thing, being flexible I'm very open-minded to any possibility. And that's part of being an entrepreneur is being flexible 
and being open-minded and just, you know, changing your mind or decisions when new information has presented itself. So it, it's, it's very important. And if you make a mistake, just <clears throat> pick yourself back up and go for it again and just keep going for it and um, never give up. And that's, that's really what it's about. And we will get through this. And that's, I think that the takeaway, Brandon, will be that after challenges, there are opportunities, there are brighter days ahead. The sun will shine again. And it's through the darkest times that the sun emerges and it will get better. So just don't lose faith and stay positive. Yeah. And on that note, I think that's a great place to kind of wrap it up. And, uh, you know, because I, I love the encouragement. Uh, entrepreneurship can be tough. Investing can be tough. There's going to be a lot of different waves, but you know, now's the time to either build your company or whatever you want to do, whatever those goals are, or really educate yourself to kind of figure out, you know, what you're truly investing in to kind of ride some through some of those waves. So, but on that note, Rosanna, you've been very generous with your time. So I really appreciate you coming on. And finally, we, we get to have this conversation. It was absolutely great. So why don't you tell everybody, you know, where they can find you and what you got going on? Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me. You're awesome. Uh, I think you're a great follow on Twitter and your spaces are awesome. And I'm so grateful to have spent this time with you on your podcast. Um, well, you can find me at rosannaprestia.com. That's rosannaprestia.com. Uh, that's my website. I have a free membership right now. And then I will be starting a premium membership for people who want to have really good um, investing ideas, market analysis, uh, deep dive on all that wealth building, mindset, business. I have a lot of business and entrepreneurship um, training, and I'm going to be coming out with some courses as well. Um, eventually in the next, probably I'm planning next two to three months. Um, and then I'm also options trading and I'm focused on that as well. I think it's a great semi passive income strategy. And I always call it semi-passive because it's not truly passive because you do have to keep your eyes on it and you have to stay current. Uh, so I call it semi-passive. Um, and then I also have a podcast, the Rose Show podcast on all the platforms. Um, so, and I have it every Thursday, I have a new episode and I just launched one today. Um, and uh, today's Thursday. And um, so I'm just talking about people um, regarding wealth building, entrepreneurship, businesses, and mindset, empowered mindset, wellness, the holistic approach to investing. And I also have CEO to CEO advising and coaching, which I've been a business consultant for many years. I've been an executive officer for over 20, like almost like 25 years now. So um, I like to help other CEOs with their vision and with their companies or other executive officers. So, um, yeah, so I'm doing all that and then we'll see where it goes and maybe I'll add up some more stuff, add on some more stuff. Why not? Right. Yeah, of course. As, as if you have more hours in the day, it seems. So <laughs> I really appreciate you making some time for this and yeah, we're going to have to do it again now at this point, because this conversation was awesome. I, I feel like we still have a lot left on the table, but it was overall a great conversation. And I really appreciate you coming on. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brendan. Take care.